Blog Talk Radio. Hi there. I'm Mary Eileen Williams at Feisty Side of 50 Radio, and this show is a celebration of baby boomers who are embracing life as we grow older. And speaking of embracing life, everyone loves a gripping tale of intrigue and suspense, and few writers can claim to keep millions of readers, actually over 150 million of us, eagerly turning pages like best-selling author David Baldacci. David has just added another book to his already impressive list. It's called Mercy, and he's joining us today to share all about it. So welcome, David. Thank you very much. It's great to be back. Well, I have had the great pleasure of interviewing you on a number of occasions, and not only are your books beloved bestsellers, but I'm just always amazed by the extraordinary list of characters you've created with various backgrounds and idiosyncrasies. But this book, Mercy, is the fourth one that features one of my all-time favorites, Atlee Pine. And that leads me to my first point, because for the few readers or listeners out there who may not be aware of it, one of the most compelling features of about Atlee is her personal history. So before we get into Mercy, can you tell us a little bit about her background and how that event led to such tragedy and various uh, aspects of Atlee's life? Yeah, so she she grew up in rural Georgia with her twin sister, Mercy Pine, and when they were six years old, someone broke into the house and abducted Mercy and almost killed Atlee in the process. And that one traumatic experience really destroyed the Pine family. Their parents got divorced, her father disappeared, and then her mother vanished as well, so Pine was left all alone. She became an FBI agent, probably because of what happened to her sister and, and was unresolved. There was no justice in that at all. She doesn't know if Mercy's alive or dead. And she's been working out in uh, Arizona near the Grand Canyon as an FBI agent and finally comes to realize that if she wants to move ahead personally, she has to have closure. She has to figure out what happened to her sister after 30 years. And part of her is scared because the last time she saw Mercy, she was this bright-eyed, beautiful, you know, pigtailed little girl. It was all sunshine and smiles and fun. And 30 years have passed. And whether she's, if she's dead, she's dead. If she's alive, she's not going to be that little girl anymore. And I think Pine has some apprehension about that. So she has her Secretary Associate Carol Blum, who's her faithful companion in all of this, and they, over the last three books, have been investigating what happened. They finally figured out who took Mercy Pine that night, why, and also a lot of other details about what happened after that and where Mercy went after that fateful night. And it was very traumatic, and they know a lot of bad things happened to Mercy, and now they just have to find her, whether she's dead or alive. And in Mercy, this novel, all of that is resolved, and everything's resolved about Mercy, what happened to her, and also about what happened to Pine's parents. Yeah, and this is really a fascinating conclusion because it doesn't come easy to her when she finally finds Mercy. So I don't want you to have to give away too much, but are there a few little hints you can give us about uh, how this all comes to resolution in the fourth novel? Yeah, I mean, I, I really could have done it. I could have done this book a couple of different ways. I could have left it until the very end of this novel and, and before you find out what happened to Mercy, but I decided to do it a different way. I thought the reader had hung with me for three books, and I had built up this, this character of Mercy Pine to almost mythical proportion. So I wanted the reader to be able to spend a lot of time with that character, and they are able to in this novel. So they know mercy and what she has become and what she has suffered through because i just thought it was fitting it was just it was a proportionality to that that i just couldn't have it all reconciled in the last five pages so this is something that the readers are going to get the full bold measure of both the pine girls in this novel and i think it's going to be a very satisfying resolution for everyone 
Well, you mentioned the word resolution, and I have too, but does that mean that we won't be seeing Atlee again, or is there a chance, hope, (laughs) that she might return? No, she will definitely return. This is the end of the mercy piece of Atlee Pond's life, but she and Carol are going to come back in future adventures. I mean, I invested a lot of time, as we talked about, in creating her, and I think they have a lot more room to run. And she's got a very fascinating career in an interesting place in the country in the hinterlands of Arizona, and I think I can do a lot more with Atlee Pines. You will definitely see her on the page again. Well, and David, I know I have asked you this many times, but it truly astounds me how you've got all these twists and turns in your various novels, but oftentimes you are writing a second novel with a different character who has also lots of twists and turns. I think you are uh, the living the living embodiment of Amos Decker, I have to say. But how do you keep all this straight? You know, it's it's interesting with it with a series character. It allows me to spend so much more time with the characters. I get to know them so well, and I you know I created them. So, in my mind, I have their whole backstories and who they are and where they're going sort of in mind already. So it's it's pretty easy for me to keep them straight. Then my job is to figure out how do I want to evolve and grow them over the course of different novels and stories that the readers can read about, and that's sort of the fascinating challenge for me. But I, I like it that instead of as opposed to the standalone books, I have multiple chances to visit with these characters and to continue to evolve their, and to involve them as human beings on the page. And that for me is a lot of fun because I, I built these characters so they can go in lots of different directions, and it gives me a lot of latitude as a storyteller, which I really, really like. Well, and speaking of a storyteller, I mean, you get these insights and, again, these kind of flashes. I just wonder, do, do, is there, do you get ideas from the news? Do you get ideas walking the dog? I mean, how do you come up with these kinds of things? Or do you sit and meditate for a while? Because, like I say, it's, it's surprising to me. I, you know, I do all of that. I I I go out and I'm an observer and an eavesdropper. I love to go out and embrace the world. I watch people. I want to see what makes people tick, how the world really works. I read everything I get my hands on. I listen to what's going on in the current events, the news, and things like that. You never know where a story or idea is going to come from, so I try to embrace every outlet where those types of inspiration can come from, everything from just watching people at a restaurant or walking down the street to reading a newspaper or going online when I see an interesting article and following that article through four or five different layers to get down to sort of really nitty-gritty detail that for me is a day that we don't learn something new is a day that's totally wasted in your life so for me every day i try to fill up my knowledge base even more because the more you know about lots of different things all of a sudden intriguing ideas and plot lines can come together pretty easily well, well, you know, I was just thinking, I don't live in the area that you do, but you are pretty famous, and so people know your face. So if I was seated next to you at a restaurant, I'd be sure you'd be eavesdropping on my conversation. Absolutely. <laughs> 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 well, anyway, as I said, I, I love your stories, and I, I, I'm kind of projecting myself into you and thinking, okay, you're thinking, oh, I'm really going to get the reader with this twist, or oh, I'm going to give it to him now, because uh, you really do accomplish that in all of your books. But I would like to also move on to something else that I know is really, really important to you, and during the holidays, we want to give back and we want to think about others. So can you tell us a little bit about the Wish You Well Foundation and now they've got a new aspect, feeding mind and body. Yeah. Um, so 
My wife and I started it about 20 years ago, and the Wishua Foundation's mission is to eradicate illiteracy in the U.S., and we have far too much of it. So we fund literacy organizations, initiatives, and programs around the country. We get about 5,000 grant applications a year from these organizations, and we fund as many as we can. The last two years of the pandemic, we've been the most active we've ever been and have given out the most money we ever have over the course of two years because so many organizations are in desperate need with people losing their jobs and not being able to go to school and all that. And also a lot of businesses and not-for-profits that supported these organizations, they stopped funding because their businesses and donations fell through the floor because of the pandemic. We tried to step into the breach and do as much as we possibly can. And about seven or eight years ago, we started Feeding Body and Mind. We partnered with Feeding America, which runs the nation's food banks, and we collect on my book tours, uh, new and gently used books from my fans, and then we send pay to have those boxes shipped to local area food banks around the country. And over the last seven or eight years, we've donated about two million books from my fans. People going in to seek food assistance often have a little literacy skill. Illiteracy, poverty, and hunger go hand in hand. If you have one, you can have the other two. So people could go in and seek food, which they need to survive, but also bring books back home so they can read, their children can read. You know, I've never seen a bad result from a book being in a home. I've seen so many bad results from no books being in a home, and you'd be surprised how many millions of homes in this country a book has never crossed the threshold of the, of the house. So that's our mission is to eradicate illiteracy and also to spread books around the world. Well, and I know the Wish You Well Foundation has a website. I was on it. This totally surprised me that almost a quarter of the adult population in the United States is reading level one, and another quarter of the U.S. population is reading level two. So what does that mean? That means that people at the very bottom level are functionally illiterate. They are basically don't have any reading skills at all. And then the people above that, level two, um, they would have difficulty reading a short grocery list. They would have great difficulty reading a map. Um, and they've even had studies, Johns Hopkins did a study years ago, where people who could read at a high level and people who couldn't, they had the same diagnosis of a disease, and their prognosis should have been the same. But their outcomes were diametrically different. People who could not read died at a rate three times that of the people who could read at a high level. If you think about it, it's because people who who can't read at a high level, you know, how are they going to get to the doctor's office? You know, they can't even read a bus route map. And when they're given prescription medicine, guess what? There's a label there that you have to read to understand what dosage to take. So all these different elements feed into the fact that people who can't read at a high level fall through the cracks of society, and even their health outcomes are worse because they can't participate in their own treatment at a, at a level that people expect them to be able to. So all those outcomes could be avoided if we could get people's reading level up to you know the three and four level uh, series, and then things would really start to turn around. And not just that, but a lot of the problems we have as a country, everything from poverty to social injustice to prejudice to crime, fall by the wayside the more and more people can read at a higher level because those problems all stem from those things because they deny people opportunities to sort of join mainstream society. Well, David, well, I can tell in addition to your writing skills and your passion for that, you obviously have a real passion for this, too. And for those of us who are not fortunate to maybe get to see you in person on a book tour and bring some books, how can we help? Well, you can go to the website is davidbaldacci.com. That is tied to all my social media, but there's also a separate website, wishyouwellfoundation.org, uh, where you can go to learn about how you can volunteer in your own community for literacy programs and initiatives. They always need tutors and people to help out. It's very much a volunteer-based system in this country. Uh, and then you all can also learn how you can donate to various causes that will help you know everything move forward in a positive way. 
Well, thank you for that. And also, before we have to close, I have to, of course, ask you, do you have any new novels in the pipeline that we can expect? Uh, Quite a few, because the pandemic canceled all of my touring, so I just sat home and wrote. So I have three books coming out next year. One is Aloysius Archer in the Spring, uh, my 1950s gumshoe. Uh, It's called Dreamtown. He's in California in the the height of the golden age of Hollywood. Um, The second one is in the summer. It's called The 620 Man. Uh, It's about a young man in New York who works in the financial world. And The 620 is the train he takes into New York every day. And the things he sees on the train really drives that plot. It's very Hitchcockian in in form. And then in November of next year, I'm bringing back Amos Decker and Memory Man in his eighth adventure. Oh, my gosh, David. Well, I knew when, before I asked that question that you would answer it with a number, but I didn't realize it was all of that. I mean, here you've got different characters, but you've also got different geographical settings, and you truly are one, like I say, the embodiment of Amos Decker and one incredible person. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, well, thank you. I always enjoy talking with you. I really do. Well, I really do, too. And I hope my fingers are crossed that I get to interview you for these next books. It's always a pleasure for me. Uh, You are, of course, amazingly creative and about sharing uh, not only your passion for, again, your books, but also your passion for this wonderful cause you have created with your wife. So it's been a treat to have you on the show. I know our audience can't wait to get their hands on this latest book, Mercy, and I can tell you all out there from personal experience and all of the other Dave books David has written. This one is a real page turner. So until next time, this is Mary Eileen Williams at Feisty Side of 50 Radio. Say and I'll catch you later. Bye-bye. <laughs>